Hello, and welcome to the Take Us Directed podcast. I'm Sarah Allender, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, we are pleased to hear from Dr. Mark Feinberg, an experienced researcher and clinician who has worked as a key champion both in advancing access to many existing vaccines as well as promoting the development of new ones. Dr. Feinberg currently serves as President and CEO of IAVI the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, and we're pleased to have him here today to speak about HIV vaccine research and development and its role in global and U.S. government HIV strategy. Dr. Preinberg, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Sarah. It's great to be here with you. You've had uh, a very long and distinguished career in advancing access to vaccines for diseases like rotavirus and human papillomavirus, and more recently supporting efforts to develop an Ebola vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and how it led you to your current role at IAVI? Sure. Um, My career is a little bit unusual for someone working in science and vaccine development in that I've spent a lot of time working in academia. I spent some time working in government at the NIH, and I uh, spent uh, about 11 years working in the pharmaceutical industry for Merck, and now I lead a not-for-profit product development uh, organization. Um, What that diversity of experience allowed me to recognize is that um, different sectors often don't really understand each other's strengths and limitations, and what was very evident to me is that success in the global health arena really depends on how well different groups work together. And if you don't really understand each other's strengths and limitations, you can't really define what are the best opportunities for collaboration. And that was evident to me very much um, working at Merck, where we were seeking to accelerate the development of a number of vaccines that have global health relevance, whether it was an HIV vaccine or human papillomavirus vaccine or rotavirus vaccine or an Ebola vaccine, as you say. And it was very clear that success would only come if different groups worked together, if the private sector worked effectively with the public sector, if academia worked effectively with government. And that is something that I think is a... uh, In essence, while there's the scientific research, I think there's an issue of the science of collaboration and partnership. And, you know, my experience in all these sectors and the time I spent at Merck made it very clear that there are additional opportunities for us to do better and have a greater impact. But it wasn't possible to do that working in a single company. I I thought it would be best to... um, you know, be outside of that and have as much flexibility as possible trying to bring different partners together based on the insights I acquired along the course of my career. And I think it was the Ebola experience that made that um, incredibly vivid, both about what the opportunity for partnership was, as well as the need to do better. Nayavi, you obviously have a very specific emphasis on HIV uh, and the HIV vaccine. You've got a wonderful team there that's working in partnership, as you say, with all of these different entities. Can you tell us a little bit now, for those who aren't really familiar with, with HIV, why is the vaccine so critical? Why is, the, why is there such a reason to have IAVI and this push for a vaccine right now? Yeah. Well, IAVI was created actually in 1996, so it's been in existence for a while. It was the first product development partnership, you know, seeking to accelerate the development of an innovation relevant to global health. Um, And it was, you know, seeking to bring together different stakeholders. Um, So in a lot of ways, um, it's still true to that mission. What's changed is the uh, range of um, 
opportunities as well as the um, complexity. Um, so when IAVI was founded, um, it, it predated the recognition of um, strategies for effective antiretroviral therapy. So at that time, a vaccine was the only solution that one could imagine to the problem. Yet with the advent of effective therapy, no one really imagined that it would be possible to have those drugs be available globally the way that they are, that PEPFAR and the Global Fund has enabled. So that was transformational. You know, the idea of pre-exposure prophylaxis, where you give uninfected people antiretroviral drugs to protect them from getting infected, no one had, was thinking about that at that time. So now all of those things are out there, and it's really critically important to make sure that everyone who can benefit from those innovations can get access to them. But we have a long way to go. Just a little bit over half the people who are infected with HIV are now getting treatment, and the people who are on treatment or aware of their HIV status were really the easiest people to reach. The people who have not yet been reached, which is you know over 17 million people or more, and rising at the rate of about 2 million people per year, um, those people are going to be harder to reach. Um, and really, the best way to end an epidemic and truly the only way that an epidemic has ever been eliminated or eradicated in human history is a vaccine. So we need all of these tools. We need additional innovations such as broadly neutralizing antibodies are being explored to protect people from HIV infection, long-acting antiretroviral drugs. There's a lot of really promising innovation, but we need to maximize treatment. We need to maximize existing prevention modalities. We need to accelerate research and development on new prevention modalities. But at the end of the day, we're going to need a vaccine to end this epidemic. And you noted that IAVI had started in, in 1996, which I think was about 12 years after the HHS secretary had declared that there was going to be a vaccine in, in two years' time. Um, there's obviously been a series of starts and stops with vaccine development over these four decades. Can you tell us a little bit about the state of current HIV vaccine development, uh, some of the trials that are going on, and, and how they're approaching uh, coming up with a, a vaccine in, in different ways? Yeah. Um, no, like so many other things that HIV has represented, I mean, it is a terrible crisis. It has exacted a horrific toll on humanity, and that toll is going to be with us for a long time to come, unfortunately. But what HIV has done is it has transformed global health people now recognize that things are possible that they never would have imagined. Previously, it has transformed regulatory systems. It's transformed the way we think about product development and enabling access to innovations um, that are otherwise costly in some parts of the world. So it's done all of that. But one of the most amazing things it's done from a scientific perspective is the search for an HIV vaccine has really driven our understanding of human immunology to unprecedented levels. And we have learned so much more about how to make vaccines in a really sort of rigorous, hypothesis-driven way rather than the sort of empiricism of the past. And, and that has had major benefits for how we're thinking about how the scientific community is thinking about developing vaccines against other important diseases, whether it's you know respiratory syncytial virus or other vaccines, which we need but don't yet have. So what that's done, it's had all kinds of ancillary benefits, which are tremendous and will have a near-term impact, but it's also fundamentally transformed 
the HIV field from one of empiricism to the one where there are very specific hypotheses and very detailed scientific understanding of how we can get to the point where we believe we will have an effective HIV vaccine. The path to that is going to be long and likely complicated still, and there will probably be surprises and disappointments along the way, but we have a better understanding of what we need to do, and we have a more rigorous foundation to how to do it than we've ever had before. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that IAVI is playing in that space and who some of the other actors are and and how you're all collaborating together along this goal? A very important consideration. There are fortunately lots of people involved in HIV vaccine um, research and and development, which is really um, beneficial in a lot of ways. You know, clearly, as it has um, since the early days of the epidemic, the greatest source of support has come from the National Institutes of Health and really um, the investigators funded by the National Institutes of Health. Um, you know, more recently, other organizations like the European Union have stepped up and made investments in this area. Um, the Gates Foundation is obviously an organization that has long prioritized HIV vaccine development and made significant investments in this area. For IAVI, um, we've also benefited from the input and support of the U.S. Agency for International Development because you know, they believed, which we agreed, that understanding the communities at risk of infection is critically important if we're going to develop innovations and interventions that are going to really benefit them and be accepted by them. But in addition, the science that has been enabled by studying um, individuals who are either newly infected or um, have established HIV infection has played a critical role in um, HIV vaccine development. So um, work done by IAVI scientists and our partners using the engagement and, and trusted partnership with African scientists and communities at risk or infected communities in Africa has really played a key role in informing the sort of current generation of thinking about innovative HIV vaccine development. So it really played an important role not only in understanding that certain people make antibodies that are able to potently block HIV infection, the kind of antibodies you want to induce by vaccination, but we didn't know how, to understanding how those antibodies develop in the course of infection, which provides a guide for how you would want to navigate that with a a vaccine. What kind of immune responses do you want to elicit? How can you do that? A lot of those insights came from the work that IAVI and our partners do that's really grounded in the work in Africa. And ultimately, that has to come back to those communities as well with products and you know, interventions that are going to be accepted by them and able to be implemented in those communities and affordable and accessible to them. But you know, there are many people who contribute. Um, so IAVI is part of this. Um, there are many people who do additional work and, um, you know, in, in, in a number of ways, much more than we do. But our goal is to facilitate 
the broader success of the field overall and where there are opportunities for us to provide a platform for collaboration or filling gaps, that's an area where we want to emphasize. And we spend most of our efforts actually supporting the work of others by enabling them to get promising ideas from the laboratory into the clinic, which is something academic scientists typically don't have that expertise. So it's a interesting and complicated community. One of the things that's important to realize, though, is that it is an atypical community to do product development. Um, having worked in a pharmaceutical company that does vaccine development, I now, you know, much more so than I did when I was in academia, have a deeper understanding of what it takes to develop a vaccine and how integrated an effort that needs to be. It's difficult to integrate when you have multiple partners, and it's difficult to think about a true end-to-end -end view where you not only have the best science and the best development, but you have a plan for how you're going to implement it, how it's going to be procured, how it's going to be delivered. Um, the HIV field needs that and doesn't yet have that, and to create that will... Um, again, set a precedent for how AIDS has driven innovation, because that's very relevant to all global health needs. And I think HIV is going to teach us how to do it first. Just going back to your comments about um, the U.S. government agencies, the U.S. government's been the biggest funder, as you noted, particularly through NIH. Um, but we've seen a lot of challenges within the U.S. government HIV strategy in the last few years with flatlined resources and President's call for an additional uh, $1 billion plus in reductions in FY19. How do you see vaccine development fitting into the U.S. government's HIV strategy going forward? And what's the best business case uh, in your mind for making that argument or making an argument to keep vaccine development as a key priority within that strategy going forward? Well, to me, it's pretty easy if you just want to think about the future and think about what the world will look like. Um, you know, we need to stop people from getting infected. We need to protect them from getting infected. Right now, the projections that were, you know, put forward by various 90-90-90 targets, such as those, you know, put out by UNAIDS, where they're anticipating that 90% of people would know their HIV status, 90% would be on treatment, and 90% would be effectively treated. And the expectation was, that new infection rates would fall significantly. Well, that's not happening. It's not happening because we're not making enough progress on getting people on treatment or effectively treated or even getting them you know, effectively diagnosed. And the projections were already well behind on what they expected. So each year we have, you know, approaching you know 20 million people on treatment those people are going to need treatment for the rest of their lives and now the treatment is effective their lives will be you know as long approaching you know a normal lifespan hopefully so you have that obligation but you also have the obligation of treating the people who you didn't protect from getting infected so those numbers are going to rise over time so this mortgage doesn't decrease it's increasing and Either governments are willing to pay for that or they're going to have to make a conscious decision not to support people who are on treatment, which is basically providing them with a death sentence, which is that is a pretty awful thing to think about. So there are 
promising innovations on the horizon that will, I think, help. So I think new approaches to long-acting antiretroviral drugs for pre-exposure prophylaxis, I think, are going to work, and I think that they'll be helpful. It's not perfect because you have issues with antiretroviral drugs, and you also have to provide them maybe less frequently, but you need it on an ongoing basis while you're at risk. Broadly neutralizing antibodies, I think, have a, a pretty good probability of working. We don't know that. But there, too, you'd have to administer it at some frequency for an extended duration. Those will all be beneficial accomplishments and will have an impact on HIV infection rates. But it's still going to be need necessary to do even more to get more people on treatment. So it's going to be a combination effort, but all of those things are temporizing measures because at the end of the day, again, we need a vaccine. That's the only way we're going to end this epidemic. And I'm concerned that some people promulgate that that's not the case. Um, you know, we have a, we're going to be in the fight against HIV for the long term. And we need to prepare for that. And we need to have a strategy for how we optimize each step of the process, maximizing diagnosis, maximizing treatment, maximizing prevention. But at the end, the end is going to come when there's a vaccine. When uh, you were just speaking, it made me think about uh, resistance. And uh, this is an area of particular focus. We're launching a commission on strengthening America's health security. Uh, and resistance is one of the five pillars within that. You know, we, we don't talk about HIV resistance in the same way that we talk about it with antimicrobial resistance or malarial resistance. Uh, and I just wondered your thoughts on, um, in terms of vaccine development, dealing with uh, some of the resistance issues that have emerged in East Africa and Southern Africa and um, how the, it, within the R&D field that's being accounted for uh, in the trials? Um, the resistance to antiretroviral drugs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, that is a huge problem that, to be honest, I believe is more enormous than people appreciate. Because mm -hmm. one of the clearest things that was evident from the earliest studies of antiretroviral drugs when we actually had the tools to understand what was going on in an infected person when you gave them an antiretroviral drug is the virus has an inherent propensity to develop resistance. There's no miracle that is somehow going to make that different in a developing country than a developed country. And it's even worse when you think about the drugs that are available in low-income countries are not the best available antiretroviral drugs, or at least haven't been the best available antiretroviral drugs. Effective combination therapy was first announced around 1996. Mm -hmm. um, but it's only now that the sort of kind of some, at least one of the state-of-the-art um, drugs, an integrase inhibitor, is likely going to get wider access in developing countries. So the drugs that are available in wealthier countries are much better tolerated and much more efficacious than the ones that are commonly available in um, resource-limited settings. And we have strategies for second-line therapy and third-line therapy, and those are not widely available or affordable in low-income countries. So the problem of resistance has, you know, just like your commission hasn't sort of prioritized it, which I wish it should, would, I think the global health community and the HIV research community hasn't really done the work to actually fully characterize the level of drug resistance in HIV-infected people. But if you're imagining 
that you have to treat someone for 30, 40, 50 years, um, it's hard to imagine you're not going to have problems with lack of you know, full adherence and the development of resistance. And that's why we need to characterize that issue very clearly and we need to make sure that we have models to enable the best antiretroviral drugs that are optimally suited to have the greatest impact and be most affordable and most acceptable in resource-limited settings or um, available. But that's going to require additional work and additional effort, but you really need to characterize the magnitude of the problem and understand the dynamics of it in real time if you're going to have the desired impact. Maybe we'll end on a on a note of optimism if we can. What do you see as the most promising in the world of HIV vaccine development and what gives you the most hope? Yeah. Well, we talked about the transition from, you know, empiricism to hypothesis-driven research where you actually have a clear understanding of the biology and uh, the goal is to replicate the biology that you know you need to do in order to be successful. So there is an approach that actually grew out of the search for broadly neutralizing antibodies and understanding the targets on HIV that those antibodies recognize in order to affect a blockade of virus infection. And there's been very creative science done by IAVI scientists, as well as a number of other investigators, such as those at the NIHVRC and at Duke and a lot of other places. The field overall is very uh, creative in this regard. Um, but those um, ideas are now entering um, the clinic in, in the next month. So what's advantageous about that is this is the first time that an HIV vaccine candidate is going to enter the clinic when we know exactly the immune response we're targeting um, elicitation of, and we will know very early on in the course of the study whether we're successful or not. And we hopefully will, with time, develop the ability to do iterative discovery. So we take a product into the clinic, understand how it performs in humans, and then go back to the lab and optimize it so it does better. We've never been able to do that before. What the history of HIV vaccine development has been is trying the empiric approach with hopeful thinking, but not the strongest scientific foundations. And you have to wait until you enter a large phase three study only to find out that it doesn't work. That is not a good way to work. That is not the most effective. Um, it's not the most efficient. And it's not likely to give us the desired product, an effective HIV vaccine. I think we don't know how hard it's going to be to accomplish the hypothesis-driven approach, but it's um, a fundamentally different place to be than the field has ever been before. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're uh, thank you for joining us and Happy for your thoughts. Here. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of our Take Us Directed podcast featuring Dr. Mark Feinberg. We invite you to subscribe to Take Us Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.